Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Today, we're walking in the footsteps of a socially conscious entertainer whose musical talents led her to change her life for the better. And we welcome back a friend whose efforts are saving one of the most graceful and beautiful big cats on our planet. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to World Footprints, the leading voice in socially responsible travel and lifestyle. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick, and along with my husband, Ian, we're going to introduce you to an extraordinary singer, Renee Marie, and share what our good friend, Dr. Lori Marker of the Cheetah Conservation Fund, has been up to recently in her efforts to keep cheetahs from going extinct. Thanks, dear. Renee Marie is a singer, actress, and writer who uses her energetic and dynamic voice to raise awareness about social issues. Inspired by iconic entertainer Eartha Kitt, Renee recently released a tribute album honoring Eartha Kitt and measures her success by shining attention on important issues in America and on bold artists like Eartha Kitt, who helped change America's landscape for the better. Eartha Kitt. So as I was naming the different names, when I said Eartha Kitt, somebody said, ooh. I said, yeah, you know, I do uh, several songs that Eartha Kitt also did. And of course, at the time, I had never heard of I Want to Be Evil or I'd Rather Be Burned as a Witch. The cheetah, one of the oldest and most majestic animals in the world, is fighting to survive. While it's taken 4 million years for the species to develop, it has taken only 100 years for mankind to bring the cheetah to the edge of extinction. Dr. Lori Marker has made it her life's mission to reverse that trend. As the founder of the Cheetah Conservation Fund, Dr. Marker and her team are ensuring that the cheetah is here for the ages. We have 50 cheetahs that are at our sanctuary right now. And our, you know, our focus is to try to keep the cheetahs living in the wild. So we don't really want animals in captivity. However, if we do end up with little orphan cheetahs, some of them could potentially go back out to the wild. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. Visit and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. Renee Marie is a singer, actress, and writer who uses her energetic and dynamic voice to raise awareness about social issues, share our common history, and honor those whose shoulders we stand on. Over the years, as her career flourished, Renee found commonalities and inspiration through one of the most iconic figures in America, Eartha Kitt. Renee, who has just released a tribute album honoring Eartha Kitt, believes that success means shining attention on important issues in America and on bold artists like Eartha Kitt, who helped change America's landscape for the better. Welcome, Miss Renee, to World Footprints. <laughs> Thank you, Tanya. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Now, you know, we've both listened to a few tracks from your latest album, mm -hmm. and I personally was very mesmerized by by your powerful voice and by the likeness uh, of Eartha Kitt that you projected. How did you manage to do that? The likeness that I managed to project of Eartha Kitt, I didn't realize I had. <laughs> you, you do. You sound... You sound very reminiscent of the Eartha Kit that I've listened to throughout oh, the years. Wow, I'm surprised. I'm surprised because I think Eartha's voice is is just inimitable, mm. and her her whole persona and the way she delivered a song was unlike anybody else I've ever seen 
ever. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it certainly wasn't me trying to trying to imitate her, but um, there's a certain joie de vie that she has that I <laughs> that I think is wonderful. And um, perhaps we might be alike in that small way, mm-hmm. in, in the delivery of a song at this, you know, lots of fun and just, you know, having a good time. As a matter of fact, um, whenever I, I do the song, I Want to Be Evil, I, I encourage the women in the audience, I tell them, you know, you should buy this CD and learn the words to it so you can lip sync it, you know, get yourself a little outfit and and lip sync it to it. It's a whole lot cheaper than therapy. <laughs> you know, I, I hate to say this with my husband sitting right next to me, but that was a song that really resonated <laughs> with me. I'm telling you. And how about that? I mean, it's really audacious. I know. To hear a woman sing about wanting to be evil or wanting to be burned as a witch and never to burn at all. <laughs> oh, I love the title of that song. Now, oh, now, now, this project, you know, anytime you, you do a tribute album or you know you redo songs um, from other artists it's always kind of risky because you find people comparing you and you know fairly or unfairly and and so what inspired you to take on this type of risky project well you know I just I was thinking we were sitting in the offices of the Motema Motema music label and thinking about um, what the next thing I wanted to do, and it's always been a desire of mine to sing songs of the women from whom I, I guess you say, inspired me the most musically. And so that would include Roberta Flack, Nina Simone, because they both sang and played the piano. And also there was Phoebe Snow, there's Bonnie Raitt, uh, Miriam Makiba, and Eartha Kitt. So as I was naming the different names, when I said Eartha Kitt, somebody said, ooh. I said, yeah, you know, I do uh, several songs that Eartha Kitt also did. And of course, at the time, I had never heard of I Want to Be Evil or I'd Rather Be Burned as a Witch. I was thinking more of My Heart Belongs to Daddy, mm-hmm. um, um, Peel Me a Grape, something else. And so, um, but then I, saw, I thought, oh, what about a tribute album? And before I could stop myself I had said that because I swore I would never ever ever do a tribute album <laughs> hmm. and it's not really a tribute to to Eartha my viewpoint was let's let's do a tribute to the music that she used to sing not to Eartha herself because I thought that's the last thing I want is people comparing me to Eartha because they're in my mind honey there ain't no comparison you know you might as well they broke the mold, mm-hmm. or she broke the mold, I mm-hmm. should say. So um, I, I was a, a bit afraid of that, and yet I knew that from a marketing standpoint, we might as well be honest here, to to try and market it like that was a good idea. So there was a lot of back and forth of me wanting to maintain my um, creative uh, purity, what, what I saw as my creative purity, and them also seeing the benefit of of putting Eartha Kitt more to the forefront. And so once they decided that, that they wanted to put With Love to Eartha Kitt on there, it it just seemed to behoove me to find out more about Eartha Kitt's life. Mm-hmm. And that's where the gold was. Right. And right. speaking of her life, you know, she lived a very inspiring life. And I think just reading about you and the things that you've done, you've... Um, 
I was going to say channeled her, um, but, you know, you have your own inspirational story and teaching moments um, throughout your life's journey about courage, faith, and tenacity, and and really philanthropy. Um, And I I love that commonality that, that... you share with her and, and and other artists, but we're talking about Eartha here um, right now. Talk a little bit about your life's journey from, you know, before 40 years old or 42 when okay. you started your singing career until now. Okay. Well, um, the first 40 years of my life, <laughs> <laughs> well, the, like from 20, well, I got married at 18. Okay. And um, I had my my first son about a year and a half later, and then my second son about another year, two years later or more. And um, my husband and I were very religious. We belonged to a strict religious organization, I'll call it. And um, and I was I was um, in that group for twenty some years. And prior to that, prior to joining that group. My husband and I met in a, a a band. He played keyboards, and he plays other instruments as well too. And I was a singer, so that's how we met. But we stopped when we joined this group. Um, but we continued to play music at home, and you know, among this group of people that we worshipped with. So, um, and I worked at the bank. I loved being a mom, and I loved working at the bank. I um, started off as a teller. And then over the next nine years, moved up to um, training customer service reps. I developed a, a booklet for for the bank to train the customer service reps with, and I conducted classes and trained the trainers. So it was very enjoyable for me. And the whole time, Tanya, I'm singing. I'm singing at work. I'm singing in the car. I'm singing everywhere. And so um, my son, my oldest son, one day when I was 42. He encouraged me to come to a restaurant and listen to a woman singing with a trio and and said, as a way of convincing me I should do the same, he says, you, she's singing the same songs you're singing, Mom, but she's not doing anything with them. They're just boring and dead. And, and I remember sitting there thinking, wow, I can't believe she's getting paid to do this. It was really a travesty. So um, we went home and talked it over as a family, my two sons and my husband. And uh, decided that I would um, call a friend who had his own quintet and ask him if I could uh, sit in with his group. And I did. It seemed to be not even a week had passed before I went down there. And that's where it started. I, I, I started singing, and I forgot how much my own personality is embedded in in my singing and this whole other language and way of being comes out for me that that's not doesn't I haven't found an outlet for any other way I'll put it that way Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so since then you know I mean I, I started singing and I within a year I had my own band because I was tired of singing only the songs that musicians you know instrumentalists want to play in their key so I had to get my own songs and my own keys and I got my own band and my husband um, he gave me an ultimatum and told me I either had to stop singing or move out Um, which was quite keeping in line with 
the way men typically dealt with women in that religious organization. Mm-hmm. So, um, after some physical violence um, that accompanied the ultimatum is when I got up off the floor and I walked out the door. Um, not because I just, you know, it wasn't one of those movie moments where I got to sing, I got to sing, Ma, I got to sing. It was, I do not want to live under these conditions, yeah. period. Yeah. No matter what the issue had been, mm-hmm. I would never, I, I still would have walked up, I mean, walked out. So um, once I did that, it seemed like I went through some type of force barrier or a force field that had been keeping me in one spot. And once I broke through that, all these things started happening (laughs) that I just cannot chalk up to coincidence. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to call it. I just know that once I set that as my intention, that I was going to leave that behind and do the thing that resonated as true for me, it just... It was like I found my my air current, like a, a a bird. You know, they get up in the air current so they don't have to flap their wings mm-hmm. as hard and as often. That's how it felt. It seemed like my path was just laid out so clear and obstacle free. Renee, when yeah. you talked about some of the things that you overcame, uh, starting your career at the age of forty, uh, mm-hmm. a tough marriage. Uh, leaving behind a, 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 a job that probably didn't bring you the kind of fulfillment that uh, singing has uh, since brought you. How did you get through all of those negative things, these kind of nattering nabobs of negativism, as uh, we like to say here in Washington, <laughs> to make this Not bold step? <laughs> nattering nabobs of negativism. <laughs> well, i got to tell you, Ian, I... Never, I never thought, oh, singing is going to be my career. What I did was, you know, I'm a really introspective person anyway. And so every so many weeks, I would ask myself, am I doing what's making me happy? Do, is my conscience clear about this? Is this what I really want? Or am I doing this to please somebody else? And that would be my compass. Like, is this true for me? You know, leaving a religion um, that's really strict like that, when you when you leave it behind, you're left, and, and also an, uh, an oppressive marriage, you're left with not knowing who you are or wondering, well, which part of this is me and which part of this did I do to please other people. So I was constantly asking myself that because I wanted to know who I was. I really didn't know. And that was my guiding light. It wasn't that I want to have a career in singing. It was simply, is this making me happy? Does this make sense? How do I feel when I say I'm going to go and do such and such? Do I feel like, oh, I don't want to do that? Or am I like happy, excited, scared, but still like, yeah. That's what I want. And I pay attention to that. And it's it's been that way ever since then, and it has stood me in good stead. I recommend it to anybody else who's trying to figure out what to do, is to ask yourself, what feels right when I say I'm going to 
sing or blah, 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 or I'm going back to my job, or I'm going back to my husband, or I'm going to leave my husband, which feels right, because we always know, we know. After the break, it's more with Renee Marie as we talk about her social consciousness and why she's not afraid to shy away from the tough issues and painful chapters in American history when she has the spotlight. What do you think I should do? What would uh, Martin Luther King do? Or based on your knowledge of Martin Luther King, do you think I should go on a full head with this? Or, And he said, absolutely. He said, it's your decision, but... It would be, you know, the, the course of courage to take. Next, as World Footprints continues. Bonjour, je m'appelle Nico, je suis français et j'adore écouter World Footprints. Hello, I'm Nico, I'm French and I love to listen to World Footprints. Suffrage Centennials is having its first birthday in 2014. Find out about events and celebrations. SuffrageCentennials.com Tap New York State on the shoulder about putting the spirit of 1776 suffrage campaign wagon on permanent exhibit. Celebrate women's freedom to vote and rock the cradle of the U.S. women's rights movement. SuffrageWagon.org Are you planning a vacation, a business trip, or a honeymoon abroad? Want to enhance your trip and make a meaningful contribution to the places you visit? Packforapurpose.org can show you how. Before you travel, visit Packforapurpose.org. It's easy to make a big impact. World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors, and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr. to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals. Human trafficking is the fastest growing criminal industry in the world. One of the greatest myths is that human trafficking is only a third world problem. But neither education, wealth, age, race, nor social standing protects one from becoming a victim of human trafficking. Awareness and action are key to fighting this crime against humanity. To report human trafficking or to learn more, call the National Human Trafficking Hotline at 1-888-3737-888. Collectively, we can put an end to human trafficking one step at a time. Visit the Galapagos Islands, meet polar bears in Canada, sip wine in northern Italy, explore the Hawaiian Islands aboard a luxury yacht, and stand face-to-face with China's terracotta soldiers. Explore the world on a journey of a lifetime with World Footprints Discovery Tours. These tours give a unique view of the world in an intimate, small group setting with the freedom to immerse yourself in local culture, learn, and make new friends along the way. Book early and save. Visit worldfootprints.com and look for Discovery Tours to begin your next adventure today. Hi, my name is Catherine from France and I love listening to World Footprints Radio. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. 
here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. There's more of our conversation with Renee Marade. One of the things that I picked up on you is that you have quite a sense of humor. I caught the was bend earlier, <laughs> and I also know you uh, have this beautiful acronym that I love as well, GRITS. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if if uh, you are a grit, then I must be a Brit. So talk to <laughs> us about um, your growing up in the South, and yeah. uh, my uh, family is from Virginia. So yeah. Oh, really? Covington, Virginia. No yes, yes. Oh, my gosh. That's right. Wow, we used to go there all the time. Uh-huh. Covington and Clifton Falls. You know it. The Twin Cities. The Twin Cities of the Alleghenies. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's just down the street from yeah. Roanoke. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, so what was it about your life growing up there that really kind of set the stage for where you are today? Um, it wasn't so much growing up there. I think if I had to name one thing that really has served as a beacon, it's my mom. Hmm. Because my mother um, was an abused wife for years, much worse than what I, I have, what I experienced. And she had seven children, not two. And um, when she finally left my dad, she didn't know how to drive. She had never written a check. She had never picked out her own clothes. I mean, this was, you know, back when women really just were under their, under a husband's thumb. So when she left and we moved into, we were homeless for about three months, and then we moved in with some, into our own little um, duplex. My mom learned how to drive. She got her own job, then she got another job, then she got a third job to support and bring, you know, each one of us kids to live with her one by one. She bought her own house, hmm. and so, and and not one time did my mom ever complain or um, um, cast aspersions at my dad. Not one time. She never whines, and she would always say, "Well, you just keep on going." You know, she kept a positive attitude, and we were terrible teenagers. <laughs> We just gave her a hard time, not deliberately, but that's what we go through. You weren't the family angel then? No, not at, no. By the time I reached 15, no, I was not the angel. <laughs> I was when I was little, but, um, <laughs> but no. No, I, we, we gave her a hard time. And so um, the, the whole thing, it's, it wasn't so much growing up in Roanoke as it was seeing my mother change into this strong, self-determined uh, person with a heart huge enough for forgiveness and letting bygones be bygones and helping other people. Mm. She's just really an amazing person. I can't stress that enough. Mm-hmm. And and I know that her courage and just witnessing her personal growth has helped you through a lot of adversity. And, you know, the one event that we know about and is uh is that incident that took place in Denver in two thousand eight I believe. Yeah. Um you know, and, and share what happened there just for the, the benefit of our audience who may not um know about the um the performance that you made at the behest well, of the mayor. 
Well, it, it was the mayor's state of the city address, and it was it was held in City Hall. They had asked me, um, well, maybe three months before that event, they had I had been asked to sing at the um, the Colorado Prayer Luncheon, which is what all the mayors of the Colorado state get together in Denver, and as well as the governor, and you know, it's a real big hoity-toity thing. Mm-hmm. And so I sang. Um, uh, lift every voice and sing lyrics with the melody of the Star Spangled Banner at that event three months prior. And afterwards, the governor came up to me and gave me this big hug. You know, he says, "Do you know what you just did? Wow, that was great!" And people from the mayor's office, the mayor was not there, the mayor of Denver wasn't there, but mm-hmm. people from his office came up and t- told me how much they enjoyed that. And gave me the, uh, one of them gave me his card, and then I got an email about a month later saying, "Would you sing at the mayor's state of the city address?" So, since I had done that song there previously, I thought, "Well, this should be cool." But as the date got closer, you know, I was filled with some apprehension and fear. I didn't know what a what a mayor's state of the city address was. I just felt this sense of. Ooh, mm, this is going to be something. So much so that I, I called a dear friend of mine, uh, Dr. Vincent Harding, who was a contemporary of Martin Luther King. He worked with him and wrote some of his speeches. He was living in Denver at the time, and, and I asked him, you know, what do you think I should do? What would uh, Martin Luther King do? Or based on your knowledge of Martin Luther King, do you think I should go a full head with this? Or... And he said, absolutely. He said, it's your decision, but it would be, you know, the, the course of courage to take. So when I went to the, the, the next day was the mayor's state of the city address. And um, when they called my name to sing, just for a split second, I, I said to myself, now, you know you don't have to go through this. You, you can just go ahead and do it the regular way. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But then I thought about my dad and other um, African-American men who had served in the military in World War II. And when they came back, they were faced with um, acts of racism and still uh, Jim Crow laws in the South. And I just I just couldn't punk out. On, I just couldn't punk out. I just had to go through with it. So that's what I did. Um, a disgruntled member of uh, city council was there, asked his intern, who was an African-American young woman. He asked her, what was that song she sang anyway? And the young woman replied that it was um, the Black National Anthem. And what he heard was Black National and translated that into Black Nationalism uh-huh. and went to the local conservative radio uh, show that same day and within two hours I was I got a phone call from that radio station wanting me to come down to be interviewed and after a few questions I, I figured out oh so this is what this is what this is about it's like no I'm not going down I'm not going down no lion's den yeah <laughs> Mm. You know, I've 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 listened to that that radio program, so I decided I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. And then I got more and more calls, one right after the other, 
And I thought, well, what in the world is going on? So it turned out that people were listening to the talk show. They called the mayor, and the mayor called me and asked me if I would please apologize for having sung that song the way that I did. And I said, I do not apologize. I'm not going to apologize for singing those two songs. Both of them were written by Americans. Both of them are about love for this country. Only difference is that one is black and one is white. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to apologize for that, no. But I tell you what, I said to the mayor, if you're getting emails and phone calls, you give them my email address and give them my cell phone number. And I will respond. You guys shouldn't have to be trying to answer for me for what I did. And you got a lot of death threats and, and, and you know, a lot of nasty um, feedback, which I, I find extraordinary. I mean, I'm just appalled. Um, but, you know, again, it's just indicative of um, your your bravery, your faith walk, and, you know, and... And, and really an uh, honor to um, your art form, and I, I applaud you for that. Thank you, Tanya. And, and so now, you know, I want to move to something much okay. more positive. <laughs> well, that was a positive experience. I don't want it to sound like it was negative. It was not negative for me in yeah. any way. It was transformative. And result, it was transformative. Mm-hmm. And, and in life... Those are the types of experiences we have if we want to move forward. You know, we come to those crossroads and can decide, do I move forward here or shrink back? Mm-hmm. We, mm-hmm. And, you know, some of them there are not as public as that, but right. we always get to them. So I just want to make clear that this was a very positive experience for me. Understood. And, mm-hmm. you know, speaking about uh, speaking of transformation, you know, we when we talk about travel on our show, you know, we talk about, travel being a form, a very powerful form of, of transformation, the people that you meet, the experiences that you've had. And mm-hmm. as an artist, you travel all over the world singing um, and, and, you know, just in sharing your craft. Is there a venue or destination that really resonates with you? And, and what and where has been the most transformative experience you've had as, as an artist? Oh, boy. Well, this is not going to be the answer you expect. But um, I think the most transformative experiences I've had on the road is when I have been faced with my own prejudices Mm -hmm. while traveling. I didn't realize that I have this viewpoint that as an American my way of thinking is right or our way of thinking is right the American way is the way I didn't know that it was embedded in me until I started traveling and I discovered this because people do things differently in in different countries and I would find myself thinking about as I would observe them doing certain things differently that it was you know I would be disparaging in my own thoughts about these people who well, <laughs> well anyway you understand what I'm trying I, to say I do and you know and I thank you for your honesty um, because that's what we try to espouse on World Footprints we want people to kind of confront their own 
flaws and and really just start to see and grow um, and understand that we all share a common humanity and uh, and so I love the fact that you're sharing you know these these growth opportunities that travel has provided you. It's so true, um, and it, it's not enough to just experience it. I think we have to to complete the circle of learning. We do have to talk about it Indeed. to someone. We have to tell other people this is what happened. And this, as an example, I, I traveled to Germany for the first time, and um, unbeknownst to me. I had absorbed a lot of the German stereotypes that I've seen in cartoons since I was a kid up till now in movies of Germans, Nazis, etc., etc. And I was shocked to discover that when I heard people, especially men, speaking in German, I automatically assumed that that there was something... I'm just being totally honest here that there was something bad about it because because it's always shown that way in the media. Not always, but the majority of the things I've seen in the media reflect this, this thing about Nazism and Germans. But my personal experience while I was in Germany, which was for over a week, my personal experience didn't reflect any of that. All of it was positive and great that I had with with um, with Germans, mm. but my but the stereotype was a huge thing that was already embedded in my heart mm-hmm. and my thinking, and I didn't know it until it came out, and I was so dismayed to discover that I had this inside me. I mean. I was almost in tears at the thought, like devastated, like, oh my goodness, what in the world? <laughs> but that, that's part of the, the continuing growth process. We're all in evolution yes. all yes. the time. So um, I have enjoyed, we have enjoyed oh, speaking no, to you today. Oh, no, it's not over, no. <laughs> I know, we could, we could go on for an hour or so oh. with you, uh, but we've truly enjoyed speaking to you mm-hmm. and I personally want to thank you for having the courage to go out, for taking those faith steps forward to allow you to share your gift with the world. I truly appreciate it, and I know that um, your tour schedule, and I really encourage our listening audience to find you and seek you out and listen to you, but I know your tour schedule is available on your website at ReneeMarie.com, and we'll also have a link to your site on our website, and you also have a Facebook and Twitter page, which we've joined. Um, but, Wonderful. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> Renee, Marie, thank you so much for, for joining you, us today. It's been a blessing. Oh, thank you so much, you guys. Take good care. When we return, Dr. Lori Morker of the Cheetah Conservation Fund will share some recent initiatives that will help keep the cheetah alive and well for future generations. We have 50 cheetahs that are at our sanctuary right now. And our, you know, our focus is to try to keep the cheetahs living in the wild. So we don't really want animals in captivity. However, if we do end up with little orphan cheetahs, some of them could potentially go back out in the wild. Next, as World Footprints continues. Hi, my name is Marcia Alexion, and I'm talking to you from Vancouver right now. I am originally from Brooklyn, New York. I've been living in Vancouver for about 20 years, and I love World Footprints Radio. 
Did you know that World of Footprints has something for everyone? From great radio shows with celebrity guests and the latest travel news and information to dynamic travel deals and more. Make WorldFootprints.com your first stop. Also, don't forget to visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. An anti-trafficking organization in India teaches former sex workers the skills of carpentry and printing. A cooperative in Brazil gives jobs to former forced laborers. And a boy from Ghana who was forced to work in the fishing industry goes back to school. Human traffickers exploit their victims. But by joining forces, we can help the victims rebuild their lives. Support the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking. UNGIFT.org More than 100 million wild animals are killed each year, illegally. Poaching is just one of the risks animals face at our hands. I'm Tom Barry. I'm an actor. I grew up in the beautiful rural countryside of Ohio, where animals roam freely in the open forests. I have a deep concern to help preserve those open spaces for our wildlife friends so they can live and thrive like they used to. Destruction of their habitats threaten their very existence. The best way to protect wildlife is to protect the land where they live. The Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust works with private landowners to protect wildlife, to preserve natural habitats, and establish permanent sanctuaries. To learn more or to work with the Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust, call 800-729-SAVE. That's 800-729-SAVE. Or visit wildlifelandtrust.org. Thank you. Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. A few years ago, we decided to leave our respective legal practices to live a more purposeful travel life and help others leave positive footprints. World Footprints was born and was quickly recognized for its award-winning journalism. We've covered events from the Olympics to a Titanic expedition, and we've discussed conservation, environmental, and public diplomacy initiatives. Join us for award-winning radio and visit our website, worldfootprints.com, for daily travel deals and comprehensive travel information. Hi, I'm James from Pretoria, Gauteng in South Africa. I love listening to and I want you to support Ian Antonia at World Footprint Radio. It is exciting. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. One of the most majestic animals in the world is fighting to survive. The cheetah is the oldest and most unique of all the big cats in Africa, and while it's taken 4 million years for the species to develop, it's only taken 100 years for mankind to bring the cheetah to the edge of extinction. Dr. Lori Marker has made it her life's mission to reverse that course. As the founder of the Cheetah Conservation Fund, Dr. Marker and her team are ensuring that we enjoy a world in which cheetahs live and flourish in coexistence with people in the environment. It's been a couple of years since we've had Dr. Marker on our show, but I'm very happy to welcome her back. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you very much for a wonderful event last night. I know you, you've been touring the country with uh, Cheetah Friends for this season, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. I've been having um, a lot of engagements, I guess, throughout the United States and in Canada and trying to share 
the plight of the cheetah with people everywhere. And you have a lot of supporters, uh, certainly from what I've seen uh, last night. You know, um, Dr. Marker, I was really shocked to hear that there are only 10,000 cheetahs alive in the world today throughout 24 countries. How on earth did that happen? Well, the decline of cheetahs has um, been going on for about 100 years. And much of this really has to do with people not being aware of how we all affect how the cheetah lives. So the cheetah is an animal that does not necessarily do well in protected game reserves. And throughout all of Africa, there are only 10 reserves, really, that are big enough to hold cheetahs. So when they're small, the cheetah's home ranges are so large that they end up being pushed out of the reserves by other large predators like lions and hyenas and end up on land outside of these reserves that is usually um, the home of rural livestock farmers. And so a lot of it is habitat loss, and then you end up with um, a lot of problems with the conflict issue with the cheetahs. If the livestock's not protected and there's not enough wildlife, that the cheetahs get killed for catching livestock. So that's sort of the problem that we're facing. Hmm. Habitat loss, you know, reduction of prey base, human-wildlife conflict, and now even issues around um, kind of illegal pet trade markets. How, you know... Your organization, the Cheetah Conservation Fund, has been around for 25, more than 25 years. How have you seen that population, the cheetah population, ebb and flow um, throughout the course of the growth of your organization? Hmm. Well, we uh, I set up the foundation in 1990, and I'd been um, studying cheetahs since the early 1970s and had been traveling through many areas of Africa and kept realizing that the populations were declining and from that had hoped that some other organization would, you know, a large organization will go out and save the cheetah and in my time in watching what was going on and why I set up the foundation was that nobody had actually addressed these issues. So Cheetah Conservation Fund and the work that I did was actually the first organization that was working with a predator outside of a protected area. Um, and from that, just working with the humans and the people and what their issues were. So I've done a lot of needs assessments and, you know, where does the cheetah live through extensive research and how are the people on whose land the cheetah is living? Um, what are their needs? Why, you know, can we find harmony actually in cheetahs and people living together? And really what I've seen throughout the whole range of of the continent where the, the cheetahs found in Africa, with the last remaining cheetahs really in Asian cheetahs found in Iran, um, and much of this really revolves around the fact that the, you know, we've got to kind of reshift the way the land's being used, the, the, the poverty cycle getting out of that, um, and yeah, I've just, I've seen the cheetah population continue to decline in many areas, and yet in Namibia, the models that we've set up there in the last um, nearly 25 years are working. Um, they're working because we're working with the communities and the people, and we're looking at 
um, the benefits of wildlife on their land, the value of tourism coming in, and you know, getting people to understand how the cheetah can live in harmony with, with an integrated system of livestock and wildlife. So I believe that, that we have a model that can not only be effective to help save cheetahs throughout the ranges, but also a model that can help people live with predators worldwide. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some of your, your critical components. You do you implement, you know, some educational uh, components, including, as you touched on, human-wildlife conflict resolution. Now, as a lawyer, when I hear conflict resolution, I immediately think about mediation and uh, arbitration. How does that work between the farmers that you're um, dealing with, uh, the human element, with the animal element? Well, I think that the the conflict resolution, I mean, it's great. I love lawyers like you who understand this, (laughs) need more of your help. But um, it's really figuring out, you know, why why is the cheetah potentially um, catching your animal or your livestock or perceivedly catching your animal, which what we found was most of the problems facing the cheetah has been a perceived threat to their livestock. So you see a paw print, you see the animal because it's a daytime hunter. Um, And we as humans think of all predators as vermin. And so everywhere you go, a livestock farmer thinks of a a coyote or a mountain lion or a a wolf or a cheetah or a leopard. You know, all of these are, 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 you know, trigger us in such a way that says, you know, predator, it should be dead. And so understanding that basic behavior pattern, I think, and then starting to look at what role we play as humans, as livestock ranchers, in how we manage our livestock. And are we just giving our livestock over to the predator by possibly not managing our animals properly? Having good corrals, using you know livestock guarding dogs, having a herder, um, having breeding seasons. And we've learned a lot about ways that we as ranchers can actually live with predators around through integrated systems and taking responsibility for our management and not in an expensive way, in a way that is, you know, cost-effective as well as being, um, you know, uh, just, you know, uh, understanding more about the behavior of of the animals, their value onto the ecosystem, and how we play a part of all of that. Mm -hmm. I know you guys, since we last talked, you started uh, a number of new initiatives. Uh, I know that you're working or developing partnerships with other countries outside of Africa, um, like the United Arab Emirates, and a lot of people might be surprised to, in, you know, in question, well, what does the UAE have to offer? Um, talk a little bit about the work that you're doing outside of Africa to raise awareness about uh, the cheetah and which I would assume may include uh, curbing the exotic animal trafficking trade? Well, yes, and um, the UAE can be a very strong partner there. They um, do have many of the um, um, people in the Emirates actually have private animals or pets as private menageries, I'm going to say, these exotic animals that... Um, that they can purchase, and many of them don't really understand what the um, laws are or the actual proper care of these animals. And unfortunately with that, it has driven an illegal market, and much of this illegal market of 
animals like cheetahs are coming from um, the northeastern areas of Africa. And this illegal um, live market, live trade of wildlife is pretty extreme, and the cheetah is a part of that. And I, I think many people don't realize that there is a, a lot of illegal trade going on with animals, um, with the cheetah into a pet trade, you know, birds and reptiles, which are huge, even you know, like plants that are endangered end up as uh, part of an illegal trade. So in working with our friends up in the UAE, you know, they, they love the cheetah because it's also a part of their, their culture. And with that, they really had no idea that their purchasing of cheetahs that, you know, you know they didn't know necessarily they're illegal, are presented to them, and then how they then are driving that trade as well. So we're working with them on, um, on trying to uh, understand that through education, looking at the proper health of the animal. So if they do have an animal, it'll have a longer lifetime instead of having a very short lifespan and then going back out and buying more animals that are coming from the illegal trade market. And then also, you know, if they do want the animals there, that they should and are trying hard to be breeding the animals so that they are fulfilling their own um, requests and then trying to keep those animals healthy and living longer. So although there's problems, the problems can be, we believe, part of the solution in trying to get them to help, you know, save cheetah. Um, if they love the cheetah, don't take it out of the wild, and be aware of um, the the issues facing this amazing species for mm-hmm. future generations. You talked a little bit about your rewilding efforts earlier. Can you elaborate on what you're doing with your rewilding program? Where we are using some of the animals as uh, and and actually doing a lot of extensive um, rewilding research on where some of the orphan animals that we get in. And we have 50 cheetahs that are at our sanctuary right now. And our, you know, our focus is to try to keep the cheetahs living in the wild. So we don't really want animals in captivity. However, if we do end up with little orphan cheetahs, some of them could potentially go back out into the wild. And so there's a few different key parts of that. Number one, there isn't a lot of wild left. And that's why so much of our work really revolves around um, developing landscapes where the cheetahs can live. Um, and then there are other areas where potentially the cheetah could be re, um, reintroduced into where they once li- lived, like Uzbekistan is an area where cheetahs once lived up until maybe the, the, the 1970s. And they want cheetahs back. So what does that mean and how do you go about that? And what kind of animals would you take to rewild? So if you were just to take a wild cheetah and throw it out in the middle of, you know, someplace else, you would never see that cheetah again. It would run and run and run and hide and you just, you know, you couldn't get to it. it you couldn't feed it. It couldn't really feed itself immediately because learning how to hunt or if they know how to hunt, but actually finding food, you have to look and find out where it is. And so a wild animal is is aware of its surroundings and for a cheetah the mother teaches them how to hunt for 18 to you know 22 months and the mother's going from a, a, a small denned area where her cubs are with her until at the time the cubs are leaving a female cheetah would have a home range of up to 1500 square miles and so she's teaching the cats what the areas look like where the food is 
where the wildlife is, where the water is. And so these are all things that um, a cheetah needs to know. However, we found that if we take orphan cheetahs that have come into us that may have lived with their mom when they were orphaned and they were like six months of age, the cubs had watched mother hunt. They knew what it was like to be in the wild. They really don't like us as humans, but they have no other chance other than us helping feed them and care for them. But our facilities in Namibia are very large, and so in our, our cheetah camps, they average in size from 10 acres to 200 acres of land. Mm. So the cheetahs live in very large areas, and they're kept exercised and very healthy. And then we have selected certain animals that we put satellite collars on and uh, put them out into a rewilding camp where we then monitor them very carefully on prey that they're catching, how long it takes catch. If they're not catching prey right away, we feed them. We're taking care of them, giving them water if they need water. And because they've lived with us, they are semi-habituated. They know that if they're hungry, they hear the, the truck and they will come to our food. Once they start learning how to hunt, though, um, if this certain behavior animal um, starts once it's learned how to hunt, it's ready to go back out into the wild. And then these are the kinds of animals that we could look at possibly reintroducing to other areas where the cheetah once was, was extinct. Okay. And, um, you know, you touched on the impact uh, that uh, the cheetahs have on tourism. And I know that CCF, your organization, offers some travel and volunteer programs. Can you share those? Great, yes, by all means. We are in Namibia, and Namibia is an amazing country. I think we're probably the safest country in the entire world, and welcome visitors um, from, you know, everywhere, and of all ages and sexes, I'm going to say, because Namibia is a place that is easy to get around. Um, our roads are good. You can drink our water. All of that is wonderful, but we actually do... Um, uh, at our center, which is outside of Ochibarongo, we do have a open to the public visitor center and museum. So we take day visitors and people can come uh, regularly and see us. We have a very small um, exclusive guest house where people can um, overnight on a safari. We work within communities and many of the different great tour operators within Namibia to welcome um, safari visitors. And yet we do also welcome volunteers. And volunteers um, can come and work with us. They can spend a couple weeks or a couple months helping with the work that uh, we do and caring for our, our orphan animals, working with our dairy goats and our uh, livestock guarding dogs, helping make cheese and educating the you know thousands of school children that come to us. We also have interns, and so we get a lot of university students from uh, many of the different universities throughout the United States and worldwide, and many of the universities we do have relationships with, and so the kids get their internship uh, credits, and it allows them to learn not only just wildlife management and biology or veterinary medicine, but also business skills and um, agriculture and livestock management. So all of these are things that we welcome people to come and help us with. Do you know if, uh, for the internships, the student... uh operated programs, are students able to um, receive any financing through financial aid or their their respective universities in order to, you know, help support their, their travel and meals and accommodations? Well, many of the different universities do have um, grants for their students to apply for, for travel, 
and many of the universities we work with are are very um, active in actually trying to get their students overseas to actually see what it's like outside of America, looking at, you know, the potential of, you know, the global world and the relationships that build with these kinds of internships and the growth that the students have. We do have relationships with, for instance, Michigan State, where I have a lot of university students from there, Uh, the Oregon, Washington, Montana University System, Cornell, uh, many of the universities over in um, in France and Europe and Germany that are sending students as well. Wonderful. As our audience may or may not know, your organization, CCF, is one of World Footprint's preferred charities, and so I'd love to share some of your fundraising initiatives like the Adopt a Cheetah program um, with our audience. I know you mentioned that to feed a cheetah, it costs $5,000 a year, and people have the opportunity to adopt a, a cheetah to help um, offset the, the cost of food. We love people to adopt our cheetahs. You don't get to take the cheetah home. <laughs> of course not. But if you go to our website, which is cheetah.org, um, it links you into you know most of the 50 cheetahs that are there. You learn about them and how they came to us and how old they are and um, you get a picture of them if you adopt a cheetah and also um, regular stories a couple times a year of how the cheetahs are doing and you know anything new with them so we really do welcome people to join us and that's a fun way of being involved with with the cheetah conservation fund as well mm-hmm. and you know if anyone uh, travels to Namibia to your cheetah camp, you know, they may have an opportunity to uh, run across one of our other favorite guests um, who you have a close relationship with, Jack Hanna. And uh, I think that, you know, that's an extra bonus. Jack's been a very dear friend, and here in the United States, he um, supports us a lot by bringing cheetahs to um, educational cheetah to an event where I'm at. And last night we were all together at, in D.C. We do have chapters of supporters in different areas of the country as well. And so Jack and his crew of um, cheetah handlers and their cheetahs have been very, very gracious to come and join us at many of the different events where I am. And we really welcome people to get involved with us. We need interns and we need volunteers here in the United States as well. So I'm also asking people to, if they're interested here, to learn how you can get involved here in the United States so that we can spread our messages, talk to schools, you know, help us, you know, go to, uh, you know, events that we can spread the word at as well. Indeed. Well, Dr. Lori Marker, it's been a pleasure as always. It's always nice to see you. Uh, certainly, it's uh, always a pleasure to have you on our show to share the, um, you know, the success stories. We like success stories, and you're doing some wonderful work with the Cheetah Conservation Fund. Well, thank you so very much. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you want more of World Footprints Radio, including our World Footprints Travel Report, giving you the latest breaking travel news, visit us at worldfootprints.com. And while there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on your favorite social network at World Footprints. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Bates, the Sandy Bates from Lake Louise. 
Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio. Because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps. There are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. This has been a presentation of World Footprints Media, all rights reserved. 